Well, turn with me in your copy of God's Word of 1 Samuel this morning. We've had the privilege of getting to look at this, uh, this story in the Old Testament where God's unfolding plan for His people uh, is made evident to us as, as He is at work in spite of what the circumstances may seem. This is uh, between the period of the judges and looking forward to the time of the kings and there's great corruption among God's people as we will see in part this morning and to a greater degree next Sunday as well. But in spite of the, the way the circumstances may feel, uh, the story is helping us to see and is, gonna, is beginning uh, the unfolding of God's plan for the redemption and the deliverance and ultimately the provision for God's people. For it is the story of God raising up a king, a godly king for his people. Uh, and ultimately that king will point to our great King Jesus, doesn't it? And so it, 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 it helps us to be prepared for his coming uh, in the New Testament when we turn to those pages. But so it's, it's wonderful for us to continue to examine and look at what it is that God is and was doing at this time uh, in the lives of his people in order to provide for their needs and to meet, uh, to meet their distress. Last time, uh, we, well, the last couple of times, we began the story by being inter- introduced to Elkanah's family. And we, we meet this family uh, where there is great belief in the Lord, for Elkanah is a righteous man, but it's a family where there's also some sin, for they are sinners indeed. And uh, we've seen how God is working and moving in their life, uh, how he is working to deliver them. And most pointedly, we came to know Hannah, uh, this godly woman. And she's going to, the last we're going to hear really of Hannah and Elkanah is going to be this morning in our, in our lesson. We're going to be reading verses, uh, chapter 2, beginning of verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 21. We saw that Hannah, because of some of the sin in their family, because of the providence of God in her own life, uh, that she is barren and with no children, and that she is in great distress. She is in a dark valley, and she looks to God for hope and for help. And all I want to say about that is if, is if you were with us, then you will remember. And if you weren't, then let me, let me assure you and say again that, I, as I said last time, Hannah's turning to God in prayer and hoping and trusting in him in the midst of her distress, it was intimately connected to her good theology. If you remember, I said that last time that Hannah, Hannah was a good theologian. She understood something of the workings of God in the lives of his people. And it gave her great hope. She understood the nature of his sovereign kingship and rule over every detail of her life. She believed in God's genuine providential care that not only is he the sovereign king who can work, that he, in his providential care, cares and does work in the midst of their troubles. And so Hannah was not not given to the temptation, given in to the temptation to think that God did not care and to wonder where God was and to think that he had forgotten her. No, I said, if you remember, she was driven because of her genuine understandings of who God was and how he works to her knees before him in prayer. For if you believe that God is the sovereign king of all, 
and that he is the one who providentially cares enough for his people to deliver them and to work in their lives, and that in his providence, everything that comes into our life down to the smallest detail is a part of his purpose and his plan for us to be a means through which his glory is manifest. If, like Hannah, we believe those realities, then we, too, will find our face regularly, both in the midst of our distress and in the on the top of the mountain of our greatest joy, on our face before our God, proclaiming his goodness and his greatness, as we saw David doing in Psalm 145. But you don't, we, don't, we don't have to infer just from her actions that she believed these things. Okay, so that if you, if you were reading along with us and studying with us, and you, you heard me say that, and you say, well, I mean, maybe she thought that, and you're inferring from her response to this distress that she believed that but what if you're wrong what if she didn't really believe that what if there was some other uh some other reality that that pressed her to god and and caused her to pray to him and maybe she had some improper understandings of his working in her life maybe she viewed him like a genie that if that if she would just go and rub the lamp a little bit that he would appear to her and so friends let me let me share with you that the the reason that the first part of chapter two is so important is because hannah breaks out into worship and what we're going to find is that you learn from her own mouth and from her declarative praises to God what it is that she believed about God and why she went there. So we don't have to simply infer from her action, though it would be sufficient, I believe. We can look, as we will this morning, at her life of worship. And so that's where we're going to begin. And I want to simply encourage us as we read these, uh, as we read this passage together and as we think about Hannah's life of worship. And interestingly, in chapter 2, you have a chapter of comparisons. It would almost be best if we took all of chapter 2 together. But for the sake of time, we're going to break it into two, though we're going to overlap some because I have to show you that in the beginning of chapter 2, moving down through verse 21, what you're going to see is that there's a comparison made between the worship and the life of worship that Hannah expresses over against the worship of Eli's wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And then there's going to be another comparison in the, in the bottom portion of chapter 2 between Eli as a father of wicked sons for whom judgment and death has been resigned to Hannah, a mother of godliness who has been blessed by God with spiritually responsible children, Samuel. So that through Samuel, God is bringing life and deliverance. And, and to Hophni and Phinehas and the house of Eli, God is bringing death and destruction. So that's what we're going to see next week. And we're going to kind of get into that just a little bit because it overlaps. But what I want you to see today is particularly why we get to that next week is because of the life of worship. And the differences, the, the stark and important differences between Hannah's life of worship and her uh, her acts of worship, the way she worshiped, why she worshiped, as we see it in her song of praise. And then we're going to turn to uh, Hophni and Phinehas' worship. And so we'll see that comparison then this morning. So keep those things in the front of your mind as we read this together. First Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Before we read, let's pray. God, show us this morning that you are our king. And God, show us this morning again that you have... You have worked in our lives and delivered us and provided for us a king in Christ. 
God, let us not despair of our own wickedness and of the difficulties we experience in this life. But let us, like Hannah, look firmly and faithfully to you, trusting in your provision every day. God, open the scripture to us this morning and help us to be faithful as worshipers. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 2, we read these words. It says, And Hannah prayed and said, so from her mouth directly, she says, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come forth from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bowels of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life and brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken into pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah. And the boy ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle, a cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come in and say to the man who was sacrificing, "'Give meat to the priest to roast.'" For he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord and a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord." So as we move along in this text, you see very plainly these uh, clear references to Samuel as God is continuing to bring him about 
and, 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 and there doesn't seem to be any loud or audacious working of God does there. He's not parting the heavens and declaring to them what he's doing. He's not sending down lightning bolts to judge the wicked priests as they are in the temple at Shiloh. But let us never think that God is not moving and that God is not working. And this is a story of the quiet, ordinary, but substantial and everlasting working of a sovereign God in the details of these realities. So let's begin then with Hannah's worship. And, And what I want us to learn from her worship and something even that we can emulate on a very practical level is that what we find then is that her worship was consistent with the truth. It was consistent with the truth about who God was, the truth about what God was like, and the truth about what God's dealings with her and with men were like. In other words, Hannah's good theology, her right understanding of God, it manifested itself in the way that she worshipped. And friends, we must be careful to consider that all of our worship, on a very practical, superficial level, that all of our worship declare accurate truths to and about God. For Hannah's did, and we, and those around her, but but even we today, some thousands of years later, we learn something amazing from this woman. Not only to emulate from in her life of worship, but we learn truths about who God is. And we're encouraged to press on in our own life and in our own distresses and in our own difficulties because of what God was doing in Hannah and how Hannah understood it to be so. And because of the way, listen, that it was communicated to us through her public and corporate worship. Friends, what we do here is not only internal. You can't say, well, it doesn't matter if people know what it is that I'm singing or if they understand the words or if the words are clear enough or if, you know, if a worship song doesn't reference the name of Christ and doesn't declare to be to God explicitly, but it could be a love song to your high school boyfriend. And you say, well, I know who I'm talking to. Yes, but when we gather corporately as God's people, the question is, not only do we know and does it minister to our hearts, but are we carefully and clearly articulating truths about God? Because, see, necessarily our worship is both internal and external. It is both for our benefit that we would be ministered to and encouraged and uplifted, and it is communicative. That that we would be declaring to others, those who are visiting, those who are here every week, that we would be declaring accurate and clear truths about who God is and what he's doing and what he has done for us in the person of Jesus. And we're going to revisit that in a moment. But let's look at how did how did Hannah do that, where we can learn to emulate that pattern and also learn something about what God was like. As she declares, she comes and she prays and she says, first, look at verses 1 through 3. She's going to worship specifically in light of God's dealings with her. So so verses 1 through 3 are her, they reflect her understanding of what God was doing in her life personally and in her personal situation. My heart exalts in the Lord, she says. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. So that's her overarching 
theme there, that God has saved me from this distress. God has delivered me, that this has been done by the hand of a good and merciful and gracious God. And so then she says, there is none holy like the Lord. Notice notice her careful declaration of his nature and her desire to worship him, not because he is some genie, not because of what he has given to her, but because of who he is. Because he is holy, she says. Because there is none like you, she says in in the second line. Because there is not a rock like our God, she declares. Do you see that she begins, as does Christ when he teaches us to pray? When you pray, pray like this. And then he declares, hallowed be your name, O God. Our Father who art in heaven, you're holy. God, I'm on my face before you because you're holy. I'm coming to worship you because you deserve to be worshipped. Because your majesty alone sets you apart. And above all of the remaining creation, all of the creation that has ever been, all of the creation in heaven and everything that exists, I mean, on the earth and everything that exists in the heaven, God, you are God and you are holy and you are the rock and there is none like you. And for that reason, and maybe for that reason alone, I am before you to worship you. She says, there's no rock like our God, but then look, she moves to those who have looked down upon her and derided her. She says, talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. This correction because of what God is doing, that they were wrong. All of the things you said about me were wrong because of God's dealing with me. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. That is, he is the fountain of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. You see, she's reflecting upon that, yes, God, you are this holy and sovereign and mighty God that is worthy of our praise and who deserves to be worshipped and to be worshipped rightly. And she's declaring these truths about God. But then she says, because in my life and in the midst of my despair, God has delivered me from my enemies. Do you see that? Now, this is not, I don't think, necessarily particularly directed to Panina. I don't think she's praying out loud, rebuking her in her prayer. Maybe there is a hint of that. Certainly, Panina would have been one of the ones in her own household that would have constantly been abusing her and wondering, why is it that God will not give you these children? What is it that you've done? How unholy must you be? How out of favor with God must you be? Et cetera, et cetera. But friends, she would not have been the only one. It would have been a shame upon their family that his first wife, that is, loved and beloved wife, Hannah, would not have been able to bear him a son. She would have been probably uh, abused and chided like this by her culture and by her community. She would have been to some degree an outcast because if you remember back when we talked about the reality of her barrenness, barrenness in that day was an extremely difficult providence of God. Having children and bearing children was extremely important from a social perspective because of what they represented They represented longevity. They represented health. For many, inappropriately, they represented favor with God. In other words, that if God was happy and pleased with you, then he would bless you with children. And if he wasn't, then he would not. So when someone was barren, what have you done to anger the Lord God Almighty? Right? Even if you hadn't done any, even that's not the point at all. 
right? The Lord closed Hannah's womb and it was for her good. And we're going to see in a moment that he opens it in a mighty way. But so she would have been internalizing, I think, and declaring these great truths that her heart exalts in God, that he is her strength, that, 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 that she rejoices in his salvation, for he is holy, he is set apart, he is the rock of ages, he is her rock. And she declares that her enemies and their abusive comments, they mean nothing to her because of the goodness and the majesty and the kingship of her God Almighty. So see, first she's dealing with her own, but then look at verses 4 through 8. She's going to move. So she's going to back the telescope out, as it were. She's going to widen the scope of her worship to move from and beyond what God was doing in her life personally to say this is also what he's doing in his creation globally, okay? So that the point here is going to be for Hannah, this is no surprise that God has delivered and saved me because this is simply the way of God. This is how God works. This is not only how God rules over my life. This is how God, the creator and sovereign Lord, rules over all of his creation. So look, she expands it out. The bowels of the mighty are broken. See, she's moved well beyond barrenness in her own personal situation. But the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. They've been brought to nothing. But those who were hungry and in need, they have ceased to hunger because of God's provision. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor for the pillars of the earth. This is her second sort of overarching declaration for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them. He has set the world and what a wonderful statement of truth, right? That she's brought to this act of worship because of what God has done in her life personally, but what she is declaring, her consistent truth in her worship, she is saying that this is what God has done for me because this is how God works and moves in his creation. This is simply the way of the Lord. Do you you see that he is the sovereign king? Friends, that he puts down and he raises up. That he brings to nothing those who are something, and those who are nothing, he brings them to something. That he makes the crooked way straight. That he uses the simple to confound the wise and the complicated. That God is the sovereign king of of every blade of grass that has ever been grown in the soil. He called it out of the dirt. And that it only exists because of his tender, compassionate, and personal care. And that is the care, she says, that was reflected in my life. Do you you see what she believed about the Lord? So in verses 4 through 8, she worships in a way that is consistent with God's general nature. 
That this is the way of the Lord. This is the rule of the Lord, the sovereign rulership of God over all of these things that he kills and brings to life. Friends, I've got news for you. Cancer doesn't take life. God does. Abortion doctors do not take life. But even God is using their sin to bring about his purposes, to work all things for his glory. Friends, there is no, there is nothing that happens in creation. He makes low. He gives what is given. And in the worst of circumstances, from our perspective, all I'm trying to argue for you is to see and understand that God is doing them all. And he is working all things for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purposes. Amen. But there's no sinner. There's no wicked king or doctor. There's no evil priest in the temple. And that's where this is going. That can thwart God's plan for his people, whether it be for Hannah or for an unborn child or for me or you. Praise God for that truth. Let our worship like Hannah's reflect that. And so then in 9 and 10, look at what she says. She backs the telescope out just a bit more, doesn't she? She began with her personal experience, but she says, this is of no surprise to me because this is simply the way of the Lord. This is how he works in creation. And then she says, and not only is this how he works in creation today, but it is the great hope that Hannah has that this will be the way he will work at the consummation of all things at the end of his creation. Do you see that he is, has been Lord of my life because he is Lord over everything and he will be Lord in a new and in a more full and complete way coming in the future than has ever been. But it is because of his sovereign lordship today that she is pressed on to trust and patiently wait on that day to come. Look at what she says. Notice, notice we've gone from uh, present tense where he's, he raises up, he makes poor, uh, he, he makes them sit with princes, those who are low. The pillars of the earth are the Lord's. Notice now, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. Do you see that we're looking to a future day now? For not by might shall any man prevail. That is before, before God. The sovereign Lord, that even when sinners seem to be prevailing and even when the sin and creation seems to be having its way today, that there's coming a day when there will be no confusion as to who's in control. It will not be up for discussion. There is coming a day, he says, when no man shall stand or prevail by his own might. They shall be cut off in their darkness and wickedness. Look at verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Do you see what Hannah says? Hannah says, I believe that God is coming again to finally judge and finally deliver and finally bring peace to all of his people and to cast off their enemies, to trample them underfoot, and to rule and reign in a more perfect and a complete way than he does now. And she says, I believe and I know that because of what God's done in my life today and because of how he works in his creation every day. Do you see that her worship is filled 
with consistent truth. It's not a surprise to her that God has delivered her, for she declares that she knows and believes that God is coming to deliver his people and that everything he does in this life is simply pointing us to that reality. Of course God delivers his people today because it's a little foretaste of what he's coming to do one day. Let me, let me give you one quick other application. I said we would return to the issue of worshiping clearly and consistently with the truth. Friends, let me give you a good example. It is so important that like Hannah, I mean, we learn some great things about God from Hannah, but we also learn that consistent truth in worship is super important, that it must be explicit and clear in everything we pray, in everything we preach, and in everything we sing and we do. <coughs> truth, theological gospel truth. It must be clear because we're communicating things to people. Let me share, let me give you a good example. One of the most prevalent heretical theologies in the church, especially in America today, is that of the health and wealth gospel. Let, let me, let me, let me show you why. If I was to stand in this pulpit today and open God's word and abuse it in some fashion to pull out of context some little tidbit to deliver to you in order to encourage you that God wants you to be wealthy and rich and happy, that he doesn't want you to suffer, that he doesn't want there to be trouble in your life, that his providences in your life are always good, they're always joyful, and that it's always mountaintops and never valleys. You, man, that, that may get you really excited. That might grow a church. I have no idea why. That may make you feel really good. Man, God, love, God, is, God, God wants nothing but the best for me. I mean, that's true, just rightly understood. But in human terms, you know, God, man, God wants me to drive a Porsche, and God wants me to have a fantastic job, and God wants me to have perfectly healthy children all the time, and God wants me to be totally happy. And, he, you know, Jesus died so that I could be hanging out in a mansion. You know, Jesus died so that I could be, have the easy life. That may sound great. If, if that's what we communicate in our worship, listen to the problem. See, I would tell you that and communicate that. We, we could, you can sing songs about that if you want. There's plenty of them. But then you'd all leave. You know how long it would take for that feeling, man, this is great, to leave? Not long. Because, see, you're going to walk out the back doors and trouble's going to strike. You're going to go back to your life where you're still unable to bear children. You're going to go back to your job that is fading. You're going to go back to your children who are so wayward. You're going to go back to cancer. You're going to go back to struggle. Do you, do you see what happens? If you believe what I've told you, that got you so excited, what I've communicated to you that was not consistent with the truth about who God is and with the truth of the Scriptures, then you are left wanting for God because you are going to be in utter despair when struggle hits because you're going to say, man, what have I done? Why is God not looking favorably upon me? God must be angry with me. I must be doing something wrong. I must be in the wrong place. I must not be following his will. I must be lost. Because, see, what I'm telling you is, if you were God's, then he would shower blessings upon you, and he would, that would be the 
evidence of his favor in your life. So, so if you don't experience them and feel that all the time, then you begin to wonder where God's favor is and where God himself is and whether or not you are his who believe in Christ Jesus. So do you see that I could communicate to you inconsistent truths? Those things that are not consistent with God's nature and his working and his deliverance and his word. And it might make you feel good for a season, but friends, ultimately will cause you to question the gospel. It'll leave you wanting for Christ and for more. Let us be careful in all of our worship to be clear, explicit, and consistent to the truths of Scripture. Wow, that was point one. Let me, inter- let me introduce you to the last two. And we're, it's okay. We're going to overlap. I'm going to start again, and we'll get going to look at the last. But let's just, let's, just, let's just consider then the comparison, I think, that's made here in the text between Hannah's worship and that of Hophnius, I mean, Hophni and Phineas. Hannah's worship was accompanied by complete obedience, whereas that of Hannah, Hophni and Phineas was not. Not only did they lack consistent truth, We know that because their worship was not accompanied by complete obedience. Remember, Hannah brought in this amazing display of obedience, she brought Samuel to the Lord just as she had promised. She left him there to be raised by Eli the priest, to say, God, you've given to me, and so I'm going to give back to you. Just an unbelievable display of trust and faithfulness. But when we turn to... Hophni and Phineas. All you need to know is what they say in verses twelve and <laughs> verse twelve. Uh, the sons of Eli were worthless men. Perfect. They did not know the Lord. That is, they that in their worship, that statement is true because in their worship they did not have regard for truth, and they did not have regard for obedience. Friends, if we in our worship are not consistent to truth, and if our worship is not accompanied by a life of obedience to that truth, then you can say of us, we are worthless, hypocrites, and we do not know the Lord. For we believe things about God that are not true about him. We worship a God that we have created. And that was the case here. Essentially from verses 13 down through verse 17, well down through verse 16, as it explains the sin that was going on, I'm just going to summarize for you for sake of time. Here's what was happening. When any worshiper would bring an offering or a sacrifice, a meat offering, a burnt offering to uh, the priest to offer to the Lord their God, there was a process whereby a certain portion, specific pieces were given to the priest, and then the fat was boiled off and burned off as an offering unto the Lord, and then there was a process by which these things happened. And the problem is that Hophni and Phinehas were greedy. They did not honor God, and they took from the Lord's portion in order to fill their own stomachs. And then it even says there, the business about, it says, and if the man said to him, that is in verse 16, if the worshiper was to correct the priest and say, this is not what's supposed to be done. I'm not going to give you this. He says, the priest would say to him, no, you must give it now. And if not, I'm going to take it by force. Do you see the depth of their wickedness? I mean, how ridiculous that the worshiper would be communicating and having to enlighten the priests of God about the worship of God. Friends, it's happening all over our churches today, isn't it? Where the people in the pews who know their Bibles better than their elders do come with concerns about the worship that is taking place and the way that the church is administered. And they come to the leadership of the church and inform the leadership of the church about how they are not honoring God and his word and being consistent with truth in their worship. 
It's far be it from the people. But when the leadership looks to them and says, no, you will give it now. And if not, I'm going to take it by force. Friends, you see that? They were worthless men. They were taking from God's what was rightfully his, and they were using it for their own gluttony and sin. And so then in verse 17, it says, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for they treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. They were jealous of it. They did not know the God. So the God that they claimed to be worshiping. So consistent with truth in our worship, accompanied by complete obedience in our worship. And then look, here's the result, the last part. A life of faithful worship, consistent with truth, and accompanied by complete obedience is met with continued blessing. And this is going to get us into the opening for next week's sermon, isn't it? Because for Hophni and Phinehas, it is not going to be continued blessing upon the house of Eli. Friends, let me, let me assure you. But over Elkanah's home, though not perfect, we see consistent truth in their worship. We see complete obedience in light of those truths. And we see God continuing to bless, don't we? Look at the last few verses. It returns now to the family we were dealing with. Samuel ministered before the Lord. He was clothed with a linen ephod. His mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she uh, went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah. Listen, I think verse 18 and 19 there, the little tidbit about Samuel, he's doing good. He's not in despair. He's not broken. He's not mourning. God's blessing even Samuel there away from his mother. He's doing good, right? Then in 20, Eli also would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman. Notice how many did she ask for? One. If you will give me a child, he will be a Nazarite from birth. He will be dedicated to you and I will give him to you. And she did. But God gave her abundantly more than she could ever have even asked, didn't he? Eli would bless them. May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. And then look. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three more sons and two more daughters. And Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. What a wonderful, what a wonderful truth. And I don't mean to tell you that your life is always going to be good and happy and perfect. God's providence is difficult. Even in Hannah's own experience in life, the Lord closed her womb and caused, and it was a source of great stress in their family, wasn't it? Friends, if we will consistently worship according to the truth, if we will be explicit and clear and direct regarding what we believe about God, worship him according to those truths, and if our worship will be accompanied by complete, complete obedience, God will bless us. And friends, let me, let me just simply... Let me, let me simply, let's, let's step back just a second. Let's take a look at the bigger picture of what God was doing in this story. Do you see and understand that God's deliverance of and provision for and blessing upon Hannah, that they are evidences to us of his deliverance of and provision for and blessing for all of his people? It's simply a pattern. Like Hannah believed, friends, let us to believe this is simply the way of God. We're going to see next time as the continuing depravity uh, deepens among the priests of God at Shiloh, that in the midst of it all, what? God is quietly working. And God raises up Samuel to be a new leader 
for his people, a godly leader in his house for his people. And so, friends, we can also take that encouragement to heart that in the midst of our greatest turmoils and stress and even when God seems to be absent, let us, like Hannah, believe that he is quietly working to raise up a Samuel. Friends, let us not, as we read this story, be driven to despair account on account of the wickedness that we see at Shiloh. And let us also not be driven to despair that God has forgotten or abandoned us. For God made a way at Shiloh with the little boy Samuel, and he has made a way for us, his people, in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let the purity of God's worship and the hope of God's people begin here. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the truth that you are the sovereign king over all things. That there is, there is no time when you're not working in our lives and quietly moving to bring about your purposes to deliver and provide for our needs. God, help us to learn from Hannah to trust you. Help us to see this little Samuel as your provision and care. God, we will not always be able to see the ends that you have ordained, but God, help us to trust you to get there. Lord, I pray that you would help us at Redeemer to have a commitment to faithful worship that is consistent with truth. God, and that our lives would be, uh, that our worship would be accompanied by complete obedience in our lives. God, that it would not be able to be said of us that we are worthless men, that we do not know you. God, help us to trust that as you worked in Hannah's life and provided Samuel, and as you worked in your people's life to raise up Samuel to lead them in the face of such great wickedness, that even when we look at the wickedness in our own hearts, God, let us be encouraged by this story to know that you have provided a way for us. God, you've given us Jesus. Help us to believe in him by faith. God, give us the grace of faith this morning that we would be found believing evermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.